So one day we were talking about like, so what kind of a company do we want to create? And he says, let's think about it differently. What kind of a company would we work for? So we did a blank sheet of paper, fortunately, because we didn't acquire a company or um, had preconceived notions of, of all this kind of stuff. So we just started writing down and that's where we came up with our guiding principles. So we have 12 guiding principles and we came up with those, I think it was 1994. And I haven't changed a single word since. They're just good principles for life, not just for business. You know, like accountability. Do what you say you're going to do. You don't need adult supervision over here. You're a, a, adults. But also things like, why do we need a vacation policy? We're in the consulting business. There's other metrics to measure productivity. Why do we care if they take three months off? If As long as they meet their other targets, you know? It's billing targets for a professional services company. Like lawyers have certain hours they need to bill. Same thing with us. Other than that, why do we care? And who are we to tell somebody just because they started with our company, but they may have a family of three or four that they can only take two weeks off? It just doesn't seem to make any sense. So we also realize people are our assets. So we got to take care of them. So that's the other part of it. We don't make products. All our assets, you know, walk out the door every single day. So what's going to keep them coming back? So those are the kind of thoughts that go in our head to try and create that kind of an environment. But also fun, like let's have fun. I mean, if you're going to spend a third of your life working, you know, at least have some fun over there. Welcome to this episode of The Climb. Bob Weirman and I are excited to welcome Sheik Shah, founder and CEO of Akili. Sheik, welcome. I think uh, where we'd like to just jump in first, that's such a unique name for a company. Give us a little insight into how you came up with that and what it means to you. Sure. So... Back in 1992, when my then partner and still a very good friend, uh, who's Australian, we were thinking about starting a company and then the internet was just coming on. So we were looking for a dot-com name and all the good English names were taken. We hired a couple <laughs> of companies uh, and to get the identity and everything else and just weren't happy with any other names. And my brother and I, we grew up in, in Nairobi in Kenya and the national language is Swahili. So he came up with it. He says, why don't we just call it Akili? At that point, yellow pages were still relevant. It starts with an A. Akili means uh, knowledge, intelligence, and easy to spell. And um, we got the domain name, and that's what we've kept the name as. Wow. Wow. Very cool. And so obviously gave us a piece to dive in right there. Um, you came here to found the company. so. Talk to us about your your journey growing up and, and how you eventually made yourself to Texas. Sure. Like I said, I grew up in, in Nairobi, Kenya. My parents are Indian descent, of Indian descent, and uh, Kenya was a British colony and India was a British colony. So there was a little migration path uh, when the British brought Indians over to build the railroads in East Africa. And then it started a migration path because a lot of Indians thought there were better opportunities in East Africa. So it was all three countries, Kenya, Uganda, and Tanzania, where a lot of the Indians migrated. And all of us were born there, my brother, my sister, and myself, and grew up in Nairobi. It's a wonderful town to grow up in in the 60s, uh, 5,000 foot altitude, 100 miles south of the equator, 
75 degrees every day, 55 at night, no humidity. So I didn't know any different in terms of weather. It's just the first time I saw snow was when I was climbing Mount Kenya. And then so when it came time to go to college, most of my fellow Indians would go to England because there were a lot of uh, good British schools over there. And I never really wanted to go to England. I said, I always wanted to come to America. I'm not sure why. And at that time, there was no internet. So we had to go to the local American embassy and look at brochures of colleges. And I saw one from Minnesota that looked really cool. Four seasons, different, you know, snow, leaves in the fall. And I said, that sounds cool. So decided to go to Minnesota. And it was also one of the few colleges my my parents could afford because as a foreign student, they're fairly expensive. So I landed in Minneapolis in, in February because <laughs> 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 Bob can, knows a little bit about that. Yeah. I yeah. cannot tell you how how badly I wanted to tuck the tail between my legs and go back. <laughs> but anyway, so I, so I was there. I went to school there and uh, worked there for a couple of years. And then I was reading the Wall Street Journal every day. And then one day I saw a, uh, an article about this company in Dallas called Electronic Data Systems. And the founder, uh, Ross Perot, uh, talked about how he promoted people to just meritocracy, not necessarily in terms of who you knew, uh, it's just what you knew and how you did your job, well done, and all that stuff. So I said, and I always wanted to come to Dallas. The reason I chose Dallas was in December in college dorms, all the, all the students would go home to their families, except for the international students. And then they can't go that far for a couple of weeks. So, and we were locked in our dorms because it was too cold to do anything outside. <laughs> and, and so the only thing we could do is watch TV. And what's on TV in December? It's football. And I remember watching Cowboys games. And I said, man, there's a hole in that roof in December. I want to go there. <laughs> <laughs> so when I saw this ad from, uh, or the article in Wall Street Journal from EDS, I um, applied there. and. Um, got an interview and they sent me to Green Bay, Wisconsin for an interview in February mm. again. And I, I was going to say like a huge upgrade from coming from <laughs> Minnesota, <laughs> <Yeah>. right? <laughs> yeah, it was. And I, I, I went through, went to a bank, interviewed with some people and I said, this is not where I'm going to have to work. Is it? They go, oh, we don't know. We're just interviewing you. So then I asked the recruiter, I said, so I'm going to go to Dallas, right? Oh, I don't know. But they made me an offer and I took the chances. I said, well, most of EDS employees are in Dallas. There's some scattered everywhere else. Forgot that the reason the article was in the Wall Street Journal was GM had just acquired EDS. So guess what? I ended up in Detroit. <laughs> so that wasn't uh, and Detroit honestly is is a great town, but it's gloomy because of the, the Great Lakes over there. And I was driving a Nissan Sentra, and I cannot tell you how many times it got keyed because you do not drive foreign cars in Detroit. But anyway, I was there for two years, and uh, every day I was trying planning my escape to come to Dallas and ended up in, in Dallas eventually. And then worked for EDS for one more year and then quit and started my own company at that point. So give us a little insight just on 
your childhood and your family and the dynamics. And, you know, obviously you, you have your own family here now and definitely want to get into uh, your relationship and just the, the support and, and drive of your son. Cause I think that's, that's fascinating, but just give us some insight into, into growing up and how that was and what your parents did. Right. So my dad was a traveling salesman when I was young. Um, so I rarely saw him except on Sundays. Um, my mom was a housewife. So I was oldest of, of uh, three kids and all three of us are three years apart. Growing up was great. It was very much family oriented uh, or had a giant family gatherings all the time. My mom's side, my dad's side, lots of cousins, lots of playing outside because, you know, as I said, the weather was awesome over there. Lots of outdoor stuff, obviously. We didn't have TV until I was 11 years old. So you did everything outside. British School of Education. So we had to learn English before we could actually go to school. So I grew up with three languages, our Indian language, English, and Swahili, which is the local language. So very comfortable with other languages and all that kind of stuff. So uh, British sports, um, you know, soccer, cricket, squash, rugby, those kinds of things. Um, and then you're in Kenya, so you go on a lot of safaris and there's mountains to climb. So you start, you know, doing all that kind of stuff. I was in Boy Scouts at that time and and did all the stuff outside. And and so it was fun. It was, it was very, very cool memories of growing up over there. Lots of friends and all that stuff. So do you go back and, and visit? I do. I have been there many times since I've, since I've been here. And, and the latest was 2018. I always take bunch of people who have never been there. Um, Africa or East Africa, it's it's interesting that when I take people there, it's like never thought about going over there. People think about going to Europe or Australia or even Asia. Um, Africa, for some reason, has some stigma or maybe just unknown. But every person I've ever taken there from America has always wanted to go back. And I've taken several people more than once over there. So, but yeah, enjoy it. So, are your your siblings still there, or did siblings come this way no, to the states? Yeah, they're all here. So after a couple of years, after I started Akili, business really started picking up, and and I needed a treasurer or a CFO. So I called my brother, who was in Kenya at that time, working for somebody else, and he was doing pretty well. And I said, "Can you please come over here and at least set this thing up? Come for a year, and." Uh, set me up with a good CFO and then you can go back. And so he came over and then of course he never left. Mm -hmm. And then, <laughs> <laughs> then eventually I brought my parents and my sister over here as well. So yeah, every, everybody's here. So going back to, to Minnesota, you, you land on a plane. What, what have you got with you and where do you go from there? Yeah. Good question. I came with two suitcases. One was full of clothes and one was full of books. That's it. I knew it was going to be a little colder, but so I got all my cold weather stuff from London where it gets to maybe what, 40 degrees, mm -hmm. you know, <laughs> and I landed <laughs> in negative 12. Right. You know, so like, and uh, no transportation. Right. So it was very challenging. The, the very first thing I realized is they don't speak English here, not the English I know. Uh, I could not understand anybody. But I'm used to a British dialect all my life, right? And then you come over here and, and uh, you don't even know how to pronounce names and things like that. So the culture was very different and in a good way. I, you know, I get in an elevator and somebody says hi and I go, 
I don't even know you. Why would you say hi to me kind of stuff, <laughs> right? right? Uh, <laughs> so in that way, I'm, I'm glad I, I ended up in Minnesota because people were very friendly that took us in. You know, a lot of local families would take in the foreign students and, and all this stuff. It was great. Uh, really enjoyed learning uh, the American culture, the sports, all this kind of stuff. Made a lot of friends. And of course, the reason I wanted to come to America was... Um, I wanted to go out with uh, a blonde-haired girls, so you know, and uh, <laughs> it uh, it did not hurt me that I had a British accent, so that was good. So it worked <laughs> <out well. laughs> oh, that's good. So then, what what's you know, with it being as cold as it was, and and you um, perhaps needing some some friendship or a companion. I mean, what's the over under on how long it took to find a blonde girl in Minnesota and Talk to her in your in your smooth accent. <laughs> so it, it was almost accident. Um, like so, when we were growing up, there was five of us, but we were middle class. But the, because the labor is so cheap in in Kenya and East Africa, we had you know what we called servants or maids and all that stuff. So I had never washed my clothes, and you know, and we didn't have a washer and dryer; they were hand washed over there, and never made my bed, never cooked except for when we were out, you know, with Boy Scouts and things like that. So I remember going down to the basement to uh, wash my clothes. And I I saw the, it doesn't say washer and dryer. If you, if you guys ever see a washer and dryer, it doesn't say this is a washer and this is a dryer. <laughs> Everybody knows which one's a washer. Which, well, I didn't. So I put detergent in the dryer and uh, came back 30 <laughs> minutes later and got very damp, uh, hot, clothes um so there was a girl over there and she just starts like what are you doing and i said i'm trying to wash my clothes why why didn't this why didn't this work and she goes well that's the dryer so right there i said you know what i'm gonna pretend every week when i come down here i don't know how to use this kind of stuff and because there's always <laughs> girls and i found out girls wash their clothes on saturdays or sundays whatever it was so. right I'd go that day. So yeah, it didn't take me very long. So. <laughs> <laughs> very good. Oh man. Well, selfishly, I'm going to have to, I'm going to have to grab you after this because my beautiful fiance grew up in a similar world being from Mexico. Okay. And she just now pushes it all off on me. She's like, well, I didn't grow up doing this. So you have to do it. I'm like, hold on a minute. How is that fair? <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> That is true. I mean, we did not grow up with all this stuff, so uh, we had to learn mm-hmm. all this stuff. But anyway, what yeah. what was one of your when you you know, when you're making that change from where you came to to here? What were like some of the biggest eye opening things or challenges that you faced as you came to America or Minnesota? Yeah, like I said, one of it was culture. Second of it was I was 18 years old. I had you know, and I I grew up playing cricket, and I ended up playing at a at a very decent level. So there was no cricket over here. So I had to learn other sports. Um, and I did not know any American sports. So I tried doing different things. You know, I tried playing racquetball and things like that. And then missing my friends. You know, phone calls were incredibly expensive at that time. I barely called my parents once a month and things like that. So homesick. Uh, you know, one of the things is how do you, as an 18-year-old, you do have a lot of testosterone and ego. You don't want to go back. It was my choice to come to America. If I was in London, just take the train to, you know, 
uh, somewhere wherever my college was or from college to London and see my relatives and things, friends and all that stuff. Didn't have that choice. So that was challenging. I didn't know any of the music here. You know, I knew the British music, obviously, you know, grew up with rock and roll. So, you know, the, the Rolling Stones and the Beatles and the Led Zeppelins in the world. But here, especially in Minnesota, it was just very different. Like, you know, so there was a lot of learning curve. I, honestly, it, it worked out OK because college was actually pretty easy compared to our British high school. So didn't worry about studying a whole lot. So I, I got time to deal with the other aspects of everything, the culture, you know, what kind of food to eat. I, did, I wasn't eating a lot of meat when I first came over here and things like that. So everything was different. Yeah, well, it's interesting because I think being from here, right, for myself, and I think a lot of, you know, people in America, like that change at 18 for us is, you know, you're going, like for me, I went to school three hours away. I could always drive back home and I could call my parents and all of that. And you still had some of that homesick when you first leave, but like you took a big chance to come do this and you're like, I, I mean, and you were completely distanced from it. So good for you. Yeah, yeah, that was... Uh... I, I, again, I have no idea what drew me to America, but it was always, always wanted to come over here. Although I wanted to go to Miami. (laughs) 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 You got to start Minnesota, Miami. (laughs) Exactly. The same thing. (laughs) So EDS gets bought by GMC. GM. GM. So sort of the path to Dallas is a little bit derailed, but keep us walking us through. Sure. How you, how you finally got here? So, you know, when I went to Detroit and it was actually a pretty cool experience because there were a lot of young kids from all over the country descending on Detroit, all the new hires for EDS, all young hires. So we all bonded together. So I got to know a lot of people from all over the country. And the work was actually very uh, meaningful work. And in EDS had a great program to train young people and all that stuff. So we all stayed together. So almost like a college campus again. But then they, after three weeks in Detroit, everybody got their assignments as to where you're going to work the next six months. And, and again, I didn't get the luck of the draw and they sent me to Flint, Michigan. Mm. And, uh, Flint at that point was the murder capital of the United States. So oh my gosh. It was a lot of fun. <laughs> wow. <laughs> that was the Buick plant was in in uh, Michigan and uh, I mean in Flint. So I was there working over there and actually had a really, really uh, challenging, interesting, rewarding job. But I could not find an apartment in, in Flint, Michigan. They had one apartment complex. So my boss said, you know, you can stay in Detroit. And it was 60-mile drive each way. So I did that for a, a year and a half. Um, but never complained because I was learning a lot. And, you know, it's just the rite of passage kind of thing. But eventually I, I kept telling my boss, I want to go to Dallas. I want to go to Dallas. And so they found me a position. And then I came down here. But... The work was not that rewarding. I ended up working in a banking division as opposed to, you know, GM was actually pretty advanced technologically over there. Uh, and the banking is always a laggard in technology. So it was not very rewarding. And and then I said, you know what? I think I'm going to just quit and find my own thing. I was I was doing well at EDS. There were, got many promotions, got bonuses end up being, you know, more than my annual paycheck and all that stuff. So it was good. 
but safe has never been anything that I just enjoy doing that and all that stuff. So, so I quit and then um, became a consultant. I didn't quite start my own company yet and uh, had an opportunity to go to California, in Oakland, California. And I went there, interviewed, they offered me the job, but something just didn't feel right. And I said, you know what, I'm going to pass. Uh, but the opportunity I did take was in Monroe, Louisiana. So clearly I'm not the smartest guy in the world. So. <laughs> <laughs> Isn't Monroe where Duck Dynasty started, oh, Bob? You would know that, right? Yeah. That's, that's I, was, I was going to say, that's West Monroe. I was Correct. just down there doing some duck hunting that's earlier in January. So. Yeah. So I ended up um, doing consulting for the Century Tell at that time, which is now Century Link. And um, that's where I met my uh, my partner, business partner. And so the guy who got me the job, he says, hey, you should meet Andrew Thorby. He's uh, he's here also from Dallas and and uh, he's going to be here for a while. So you guys should get to know each other. So I met him at a bar um, and uh, immediately recognized his Australian accent. I said, what's a guy from Australia doing over here? And he found out by this time where I was from. He goes, what's a guy from Kenya doing over here? You know? <laughs> <laughs> so we started hanging out together, started working out together. And uh, um, it was four days a week, Monday through Thursday, we'd be there. And then he was married and and had a couple kids and and I was single at that time. So, but we'd come back to Dallas and then six months later we said, you know, there is a gap. There is a need in the marketplace for a boutique systems integrator. At that time it was the big eight, you know, the Ernest and Youngs and and the the Deloitte's and Arthur Anderson at that time and all that stuff. And then there were just a bunch of network resellers. So. He found a, a place in Oakland and he says, we can rent this. It was fairly cheap. And so we just started our company. And, and uh, for 18 months, there were crickets. There was no, <laughs> <laughs> nobody came knocking to our door and say, hey, we want your help. But we kept persisting and all that kind of stuff. And then it eventually started taking off. And, yeah, it, it was great. But, yeah, that's how um, I ended up quitting EDS. And so via... Monroe, Louisiana, you know, <laughs> came back over here. So. Well, you, you certainly had the advantage on, you know, 70s, 80s, 90s rock with the the British bands you listed. But let's not forget that Prince is That's from right, Minnesota. Minnesota. Yeah. I have actually a very good story <laughs> about Prince. I was, so I worked for a company called Piper Jeffrey uh -huh. and their offices were downtown Minneapolis. And then we'd go to this, there was this club called Second Avenue first i think i'm pretty sure it was second avenue and one night we were there and this this guy came on and he was a little itty bitty guy and uh he that was prince before he became prince and uh yeah awesome what talented guy oh, uh, I, I was fortunate wow. enough to see him a couple of times in concert and it's it is absolutely top five yeah. concerts i've ever seen yeah for he's sure just so talented went too early but so then early 90s you and your business partner decide to to launch Achille, or was it a pre something predecessor to that, or did it start then? No, it started okay. then. Yeah, <laughs> and and so walk us through from then to today, and and really, because this is what I find remarkable, and it's it's harder and harder to find in in today's business world. Just the approach and your mission statement, and the way you take care of your employees, and the thoughtfulness behind 
you know, more than just making a dollar. Right. So, you know, Andrew had never worked for a, for a large company and I had, of course, just quit EDS. So when we decided to start this company and so we would sit down Sunday nights and then start thinking about, okay, what do we want to be known as? What do we want to do? And so initially it was just that we wanted to be a boutique systems integrator, give companies another option besides, you know, Anderson Consulting and some other things and all that stuff. We could be, we could be better, uh, cheaper, faster. We always thought that we would be better, cheaper, faster in those guys. But while doing that, um, one day I remember um, asking Andrew, because every Saturday we'd go in the office, do some work, and Sunday nights we'd meet for a beer and a cigar and, and hang out and talk about the big picture things. So one day we were talking about like, so what kind of a company do we want to create? And he says, let's think about it differently. What kind of a company would we work for? So we did a blank sheet of paper, fortunately, because we didn't acquire a company or um, had preconceived notions of, of all this kind of stuff. So we just started writing down and that's where we came up with our guiding principles. So we have 12 guiding principles and we came up with those, I think it was 1994. And I haven't changed a single word since. Wow. I think they're, they're just good principles for life, not just for business. You know, like accountability. Do what you say you're going to do. You don't need adult supervision over here. You're adults. But also things like, you know, why do we need a vacation policy? We're in the consulting business. There's other metrics to measure productivity. Why do we care if they take three months off, If as long as they meet their other targets? You know, it's billing targets for a professional services company. Like lawyers have certain hours they need to bill. Same thing with us. Other than that, why do we care? And who are we to tell somebody just because they started with our company, but they may have a family of three or four that they can only take two weeks off? It just doesn't seem to make any sense. So, you know, we also realize people are our assets. So we got to take care of them. So that's the other part of it. We don't make products. All our assets, you know, walk out the door every single day. So what's going to keep them coming back? So those are the kind of thoughts that go in our head to try and create that kind of an environment. But also fun. Like, let's have fun. I mean, if you're going to spend a third of your life working, you know, at least have some fun over there. So some of those things we started very early on. We were the very first when we started going to conferences. So we're trying to figure out, like, how do we attract people to come to our booth? And there's hundreds of booths everywhere, right? So we came up with booth babes. And beer. We're <laughs> <laughs> like, you know, not shy about that. Like, oh, look, that's it, this is mostly male. So, you know, let's get some booth babes. Yeah. And let's get a keg of beer and do that before they started stopping us from doing all that kind of stuff. So, but even at the office, we started having, uh, you know, when we built our second office, we had a full bar and a keg of beer there. And our only rule was you can't drink before 4.30 in the afternoon. And if you drink too much, take a cab home at right. that time and mm -hmm. something like that. I cannot tell you how many people said, I can't believe you guys have beer at your office. And I said, well, do you not have beer at home? Yeah. I said, do you drink it at 8.30 in the morning on a Monday? Nope. I said, it's the same people that come to work over here. <laughs> so... <laughs> so but so it's it's that kind of stuff. So we had a lot of fun 
a lot of hard work. I mean, everybody worked. I mean, you remember the 90s were crazy for IT. I yep. mean, there was no shortage of work. Um, we couldn't hire people fast enough. So after 95, he's really started taking off. And, and 95 to 99, 100% growth a year was a mediocre year. Wow. Uh, it's crazy. So, but unfortunately, again, we're not, a, we don't make products. We just can't turn up the volume at the factory and make more of them. So you, you have to hire a lot of people. And the culture started taking a life of its own because in order to retain them, you had to give them a lot of autonomy and do all those kinds of things. It was not money that was going to keep them there. I promise you, everybody's getting, it will give you options, will give you more money every six months. And then what what makes them stay at Achille and not take these other options and all that stuff? So that's what we keep thinking about a lot. So that's how we created the environment. And and honestly, it's it's mostly the same these days. You know, it's interesting you how, say that how, because, sorry, Bob, because uh, right at the, at the tail end of the dot-com boom or bubble or whatever you wanted to call it, um, I was in technical recruiting. And so it was my job. We were retained by tech firms to go find Java and C++ programmers and pull them out to the companies that retained us. And if they were tied to the culture of that company, it didn't matter what stock options you threw at them or money or anything else. They they believed right. in the greater, the higher purpose, purpose. of that company, and they weren't going to leave. Right. But if they weren't tied to that, maybe yeah, it was, well, you could flip those guys in a day. Yeah. No problem. So that, yeah, that's, that's good insight. Go ahead, Bob. I was going to ask, as you grow, because I was actually having this conversation last week with a client who owns a consulting firm, and they've been growing, they've been acquiring and doing some things. And he said, it just, it's starting to change. We're getting bigger, and the culture we had before is changing. So how have you kept that culture from not changing as you've kind of gone through those iterations of growth? That's actually a very good question. I realize our culture started changing when we crossed probably 125 consultants or something like that. I said, it's interesting because we were hiring people so fast, it's hard to assimilate them into our culture. Yeah. Um, and we're, everybody's moving at 100 miles an hour. And so what we started, we actually hired in 1998, what is now commonly known as a chief people officer. Mm -hmm. but we hired that person, his sole purpose was to go through uh, making sure that everybody is assimilating in our culture. We had a few things that were interesting that were actually published in the Inc. magazine. We created a passport and um, uh, it had, I think, nine or 10 stamps that you had to go get in, in nine months. And it was like, here's the history of Achilles. How did Achilles start? What does Achilles stand for? Things like that. And one of them was you had to come and to... Andrew and I always shared an office. So one of the things that they had to come to our office and tell us to F off. <laughs> okay. <laughs> and then we'd also give them points on how creative they were and all this. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. The purpose of that was to just foster open communication. It was like, you know, just because we started the company and now we sit in this you know, giant fish bubble over there doesn't mean you can't come in and challenge us or, or if you have anything to say, come say us and all that kind of stuff. So a lot of those things were pretty unique at that time. And I think that helped us maintain the culture and, and all that stuff. And and even now it's evolving, right? So after last year with the, the everybody's 
you know, doing working from home or now it's hybrid and all that stuff. I've been spending a lot of my time trying to figure out how to pivot our culture so we still maintain the connection, the closeness and all that stuff that we used to do while we were in, in an office together. And it's not easy. It's it's challenging right now, for sure. So for, for Bob and for our listeners, give us a little insight on exactly what the company does and, and how it benefits those that, that integrate your services. Right. So... When we first started Akili, we were systems integrator. At that time, I, as you were saying, the people you were recruiting, it was a lot of custom development. So everybody figured out what they wanted to do, what the, the software needed to do, and you'd actually go build that. And then came the commercial off-the-shelf software like SAP and Oracle. And so you started implementing that. Um, so the, just continuing briefly at the history of Akili. So 1999, we sold a big chunk of it to Austin Ventures. They came knocking over the door and and Andrew and I looked at their offer and I said, silly money, man, got to take it. Yeah. So <laughs> fortunately we did because after that 2001, you know, things went downhill and all that stuff. But back in then 2005, he and I had kind of wandered the earth and I said, okay, what do we do now? And he wanted to go in healthcare. And I said, you know what? A lot of our clients are calling and and uh, asking for advice on what to do on this and that. So I said, I think I'm going to fire Akili back up again. So I, we call this version two. And I said, what are we going to do? The world had changed. There was a lot of offshore programming, you know, all these kinds of things. And so I started doing some research and it seemed like, you know, all these companies did their budgeting and planning the archaic way. It's been the same way for a hundred years. We just moved from physical ledgers to Excel spreadsheets. And there was now this software that could help automate the processes so you could forecast more frequently and not just do your budget once a year and put it on the shelf once it's approved and all that kind of stuff. So so today what we do is is just that enterprise planning. So financial planning, supply chain planning, sales planning, all those kinds of things and integrate. And especially after last year, the demand has gone up because everybody's plan went out of the window, right? Mm -hmm. Come February or March. So now they needed to update them more frequently, bring in external data to figure out what's going on in the world. Is it going to impact our plan and all that kind of stuff? So so that's what we are a planning company. So, you know, one of the things that you'd mentioned around what got you excited about EDS and if that is something that provoked some of the th thoughts around how you built your company, what brought you to them, that Wall Street Journal article? Right. Yeah. So it, it, exactly. That's actually a very good point. I learned a lot from EDS and there were, um, you know, the, the only reason I was there three years and I think I got seven promotions, you know, um, and that could only happen if they didn't have a path six months, you have to stay here. Then you go this way, like the big four have and all that kind of stuff. So that was, they were true to their word. So I learned a lot from them and also learn what not to do. I I hate it that we had to wear a suit every single day. You can have a beard, you can have long hair, and only three color suits, only two color shirts. You know all those things. It's very military like. You know, um, I'd have been fired day one. <laughs> <laughs> yes, you yeah. and me both. A lot of people didn't didn't, uh, and maybe that's why I wear shorts all the time now. It's a, probably a, a rebellious thing in there, but. They were very good, and everybody said to me, EDS was your best first and third jobs. 
But for some reason, I never thought I was going to be an entrepreneur, honestly, because my dad, as I told you, was a traveling salesman. Then he, then he had a retail shop. So he was always work. I mean, he worked six and a half days a week until he retired. Mm-hmm. I never wanted to do that. I just, you know, if I say if I have a family, then I want to spend time with them. But if it's in your blood, I think it just calls you somewhere, somehow. And I enjoyed it. I remember when Andrew and I first started the company, people were like, yeah, this is great. Now you guys can play golf anytime you want. And Andrew, <laughs> Andrew said it very well. He said, you know what? We're still in a cage. The door's open, but we choose to stay in. Mm-hmm. You know, the door's not closed, but that's what you do. You, you think about your business. And most of the time, you actually work harder than you would if yeah. you're an employee, right? So the other thing that I think helped us, Andrew and I, I mean, I could not have asked for a better partner. That really helped us. You know, we brought such different skills to the table. But we always shared an office, never went without resolving any arguments or or what we had. Uh, he was clear, very good um, in sales and marketing. And I was the delivery guy because I worked for EDS. So, you know, I'll, I'll get the stuff done. Mm-hmm. And I remember telling him, I said, dude, just go sell whatever you can. Give me two weeks. I'll go to Taylor's book sh- bookstore, figure out how to do these things and we'll <laughs> deliver it, right? <laughs> There's no internet at that time, obviously. But he was also a very good writer. He al- always reminds me of Van Halen when they brought Sammy Hagar mm-hmm. in there. <laughs> Sammy Hagar says, I became lazy with the guitar. I thought I could write really well until I met Andrew and he could knock down you know, 12-page proposals in no time. So I just got lazy about writing and things like that. But so there was, it was a very good partnership. We all, like I said, we always shared an office, so always had all these kinds of things. But then we also became really good friends. We had the same sense of adventure. Um, he had no idea what hockey was, but because I grew, I you know I went to Minnesota, I learned about hockey. Um, and, uh, and then when Minnesota North Stars moved down to Dallas, I said, my life's complete now. Stars are here. We- <laughs> <laughs> We could have fun. Um, and he had no idea what hockey was. And so I took him. I said, let's go see a game. I bet you we'll, we'll get season tickets. After the game, I said, what do you think, Andrew? He goes, how do you not like a sport that has rules for fighting? Right. He goes, it's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> so, so we did that. Then I introduced him to mountain climbing. And we started climbing mountains uh, here in the U.S. And then uh, went to Kilimanjaro, went to Aconcagua and all those kinds of things. So for his 40th birthday, and we would talk about all these adventures to all our companies, I mean, our employees. So for for his 40th birthday, I um, took him down to Monterey, California, and we went to Skip Driver Racing School. So we did learn open wheel racing over there. My 40th birthday, he took me to Moscow and we flew MiGs. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> wow. Wow. <laughs> wow. So, and then we'd come back and... and um, talk to our employees about that. And I think that also was just like, God, these guys have a lot of fun doing this kind of stuff. We did. But I was, I was telling them, life is about collecting stories, mm-hmm. right? Nobody remembers you staying at the Ritz-Carlton all the time. But you go fly MiGs. I, get, I remember every single second of that flight. You know, it was like almost 30 minutes kind of stuff. But Well, and, and fast forward today, and, you know, uber-successful entrepreneurs are traveling space right correct yeah exactly unbelievable yeah so talk about the mountain climbing um how many peaks what some epic tales yeah i have quite a few epic tales so i just 
when I was 15, a bunch of our classmates decided to go climb Mount Kenya. And uh, it's a hike. There's some ice at the top. So you take an ice axe and, and ropes and all that kind of stuff. But at that time, there was no uh, North Face or Columbia and no synthetic equipment. So we were wearing jeans, you know, the rug sacks with those canvas backpacks mm-hmm. kind of stuff. And it was harsh. And I remember the very first mountain, we'd come back down. We'd summited um, Mount Kenya and coming back down. And one part, it got super wet and rainy. And you see a nice piece of grass. And you're coming down. And you put your foot on it, it could sink up to your knee in there. So it's very muddy and wow. all that stuff. So we're going, everybody's struggling a little bit. And I did that. And of course, it went down to my calf and I pulled out my leg and my leg came out. My boot didn't. <laughs> <laughs> Crap. So I started uh, uh, digging out for it. And meantime, everybody just took off. It's miserable. By the time I got my boot out and put it back on, of course, it's soaking wet, muddy, all this kind of stuff. I couldn't find anybody down the mountain. Couldn't see very far because of the rain, but I couldn't see anybody. I was like, oh, my God, I'm going to die on this mountain. I'm 15 years old. And uh, then I saw this Japanese uh, group going down there. And I said, I can follow them, but they could be going down the other side of the mountain. I don't know. But fortunately, one of the guys, uh, one of my classmates, uh, he's like, where is he? So he came back and got me and all that kind of stuff. So it's scary, but never quenched my thirst for climbing mountains. And then I've climbed Kilimanjaro uh, several times. And then Andrew and I started saying, let's go start climbing some uh, high altitude Cascade Mountains where there's snow and all that kind of stuff. So we started with Mount Baker, uh, Mount Rainier. And then I said, we should do the seven summits. Kilimanjaro is one of them. We had already done that. And uh, Aconcagua is the second highest of the seven summits. It's in Argentina. So we trained for it and we went down there um, and spent 21 nights on the mountain. And wow. No Sherpas. So every day, except for the summit day, there's 80 pounds on our back. Mm. So basically climbing, dropping a bunch of stuff off, coming back down. Next morning, you know, you do the same thing and move up the mountain. And all this stuff and most miserable time I've ever had. So <laughs> it's hard. It's just very, very hard. And we were obviously trained for it. How, well, how do you train in Dallas for mountain climbing? And right. so our office was in Bryan Tower in Dallas. It's a 40-story tower. And so we'd put 80 pounds on our backpack with bottles of water and paper and just load them up, weigh them, and go up 40 stories, take the elevator down, go up 40 stories and start doing that. You know, that's it. You only become physically fit. That's the only thing you can do. Went to Cooper's clinic, make sure that we were all okay, you know, K-shape and do all that kind of stuff. But it was very, very challenging. And when I came back, so I was 154 pounds when I left and I came back and I lost 18 pounds. Oh my gosh. <laughs> wow. <laughs> and I, Nobody could recognize, my son couldn't recognize me. Like, what the hell happened? But but after that, I also realized that that mountain climbing, and my son was only, I think he was two and a half years old at that time. I said, it's a pretty selfish activity because if you were gone for three and a half weeks, there's no cell service on mountains, you know, uh, only emergency satellite phones and all those kinds of things. So, so we, and then it was very challenging. And, and Everest is under the vertical mile above Aconcagua. 
And at that point, we shelved the idea of seven summits. I <laughs> 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 said, so maybe it's not for us. Um, but the, my, my favorite recent memory is um, when my son turned 16. One day he was just, I don't know what he's saying. He says, Dad, you're too slow. You can't keep up with me anymore. You're old now and this and this. And I said, you know what? <laughs> I said, when I was 16, I climbed Kilimanjaro. Maybe I ought to do that first. And he said, sure. And my wife said, you guys are not going without me. And I said, you've never even hiked, let alone climb a mountain. And it is a hike, Kilimanjaro is. She's pretty fit. She's physically pretty fit. But uh, so three of us went and uh, we summited. Uh, it was a, we took a six-day route and we did summit at 7.20 in the morning. And it was awesome. I, it was one of the greatest memories and then I wow. remember coming back down, my son goes, I'll never question your willpower or your strength again. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Set the record straight right there. <laughs> yes, I exactly. Oh, that's but, great. That was good. He's still, but it's it's kind of like that. He, he'll tell you today, he goes, I will never forget that. And and I, because I keep telling anybody who listens, life is about collecting stories. Yeah. That's a story. Yeah. I love that. Yeah. You made the comment of safe doesn't give you give you enjoyment, and I like that. It sounds like that's you're living that out every day. I love that. Yeah, the Dallas Morning News. Uh, actually, I have that article somewhere. Um, when Andrew and I climbed Aconcagua, they did a story on us in the business section, and they called us adrenaline junkies because <laughs> they mentioned flying MIGs and racing cars and right. doing all that kind of stuff. But uh, yeah, safe safe is boring. So <laughs> totally, totally I, agree. I had I had this I had this conversation with uh, somebody uh, a, a while back and we were talking about because you met you made the mention of, hey, we were there 21 nights and it was horrible. Right. Yeah. But but like then you look back on the experience, and you're like, it was the best, <laughs> worst 21 days yes. I've ever done. Right. Like why in this moment there's. Like, how do you push through that when you're in day 15 and you know you got six days left? Like, mentally, how do you push through that? Because I think that perseverance probably emanates in a lot of the rest of your life and why you had some success. It it does. And it's it's I think you learn from very early on to not give up. And so when I first, like I was telling you, when I first came here to this country, it would have been easy to just say, no. I'm sorry, I'm homesick. Yeah. This is just not working. And then you push through it. And then and then my first job at Piper Jeffrey, the reason I was I was there's a couple of reasons I was looking to come to to um, move away from there. One was to come to Dallas, but the second was I was alone there. I had no network, right? So I had to make my own friends and all that kind of stuff. And I remember one of the guys got promoted over me. And I asked my boss, I said, I know I'm brighter than this guy. I know I work harder than this guy. So I'm not sure why this guy got promoted. He says, well, he taught our president's kids how to ski. And it kind of threw me off. But it also, it pissed me off. But it also was like, okay, I'm going to show these guys, you know, how it's done and all this. So yeah. you, you push through those those uh, barriers that they're always going to come. I tell my son, I said, life's going to throw you a curveball every single day. You know, what are you going to do? Just cower down and stuck or just push through it. So part of it is that, like how much can you push yourself? Look, I promise you there are days that you didn't want to get out of your sleeping bag and it's so freaking cold outside. <laughs> and all that stuff, especially when you're, when you're, our high camp was at 21,000 feet. And, and if you know the continent of South America, it gets very narrow towards the bottom. And so the winds are coming from both sides and it's, 
the first day that we were trying to summit, there were sustained winds of 70 miles an oh, hour. Oh, gosh. And so we were oh, like, wow. it's not going to happen. So we came back and crawled in our tents and spent the rest of the day there, you know, trying to stay warm and all that stuff. But you, what's your choice? You know, I mean, that, that's the other part with mountain climbing is, you know, you're not going to get a helicopter to come pick you up over there. So you either go up or you go down. But, you know, it's, uh, I'm sure you guys have seen uh, Alex Hanold, uh Free solo. Oh yeah. Um, yeah. Oh you know? yeah. I mean, he talk no about choice. a movie that makes you sweat watching right. it. Right. Exactly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Exactly. We we watched that. We watched that one, and I remember sitting there, and I I look over at my fiance. I'm like, Are your hands sweaty right yes. now, or is that just me? I'm exactly. like, I can't take this. I know he makes it, but geez. Yeah. Incredible. Uh, unbelievable. But. You know, I, I definitely want to hear about your relationship with your with your son and just kind of that's how you push that's him, what I, I was. Yeah, that's what I was going to ask, because it sounds like there's an awesome relationship there. Exactly. To explore. Yeah. So, um, you know, he my my wife had two miscarriages and, and she thought she had lost him as well. And uh, fortunately, she didn't. And but the, her doctor said, don't try for another kid. It may kill you. Uh, so we thought about adopting for a while and, and never got around to it for one reason or another. So he's our only kid. You know, so as, as he was growing up, uh, you know, for me, I said education, part of education is going to be travel. And so I started very early in, in having him travel around the world, not just in the United States, everywhere. And we knew he was not going to be a football player because uh, I'm five foot eight and my wife's five four. Um, so the only thing we, um, kind of forced on him was martial arts. So he started taking, um, uh, Asian Greek karate and just like any kid, he was burnt out after a while, but my wife's like, no, get in the car. Well, I've got a headache. I got homework to do. No, get in the car. So, um, part of his, he learned a lot of discipline from, from karate as well. And he became very good not only at karate, but other sports and, and things like that. And, and traveling gave me a chance to show him how the rest of the world lives. And we didn't go just to touristy places. I mean, I remember going to China when I think he was 12 years old. And, and uh, we went to almost close to Tibet and we stayed with a monk overnight and learned what, you know, their traditions and what they, they eat the same thing three times a day, mm. exact same thing. And so then all of a sudden, you know, your variety of food is going to taste a little better knowing that, you know, you have that something. So I've exposed him to a lot of different things. I had him sit in a class when I first took him to Kenya in a village in on, on the floor where it's dirt floor and all that kind of stuff. But he's been good about that. And, and, and um, Marianne, my, my, now my ex-wife, but he, she took him to, PetSmart and he had to clean out cat cages, you know, that stuff. Mm -hmm. So, you know, all these different kinds of things and, and, um, um, got him into Eagle Scout program and this and that and all that kind of stuff. So it's, 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 a it's been a very good relationship. And at, when he turned 16, I decided I was not going to tell him what to do anymore. I said, I'll listen, I'll give him options, but he's going to have to start making choices and he's going to start, um, having to live with the consequences as well. So to this day, I don't tell him. I just saw him last weekend in, in Austin, and we were talking about a few things, and I said, have you thought about this? Well, if you're doing this, then think about this. But I never tell him what to do. And I think to start 
making their own decisions, which is what you want to do. I, I never wanted to be a helicopter parent and mm-hmm. just try and tell them what to do all the time. So, um, you know, it's it's good. And and um, he decided when he was 16 that he wanted to be an astronaut and go to Mars. So he's studying aerospace engineering, about to graduate. And uh, so awesome. Yeah. So he's uh, I thought uh, there was a good chance he would change his major after his freshman year, but he's stuck with it and still loves it. So I learned from him now, but yeah. he tells me some of the subjects he's taking and I go, I don't even know what that means. So, <laughs> 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 but, if you made it to 16, being able to hang with him, you're, you're a lot smarter than I am. I mean, I scratch my head on some of my sixth graders homework. It yeah. Is, it, the way, of course, it's all changed. The way they do math now is completely different, different, but right. it's just amazing what they have access to at they such do. an early age. Yeah. And, you know, so you, I remember there was a time where I just like, he's on his phone all the time and they use it as, as a parent, like, get off the phone. But, you know, then you go, well, that's where they're getting their information. That's how they talk to their friends and all that kind of stuff. So you just, again, you know, once I stopped telling him what to do, even... I was a little relieved that I don't have to always point out that you're going to fall over here. There's dragons over here kind of stuff. I go, you know, you'll figure it out. So, you know, but that mentality seems to be a, a common theme in how you look at life. Like with your employees, it's not about this rigid system that you got to be here for six years before you can advance to this. And, you know, your first three years, you only get two days of vacation. I mean, you seem to have taken that you know, believe in your people, believe in your family, give them a path and then get out of the way. Yeah. Honestly, I think it's a, it's a relief on you too. I mean, I, I, you hire adults. I always used to say we hire adults, but then you treat them like adults. It doesn't make sense to hire adults and then tell them what to do. I think Steve Jobs said it best. He goes, you don't hire smart people and then tell them what to do. You hire smart people and let them tell you what to do. So that's some of the mentality I've had. Same thing when, you know, same thing with your family. I think you do the same thing. Just like I ask him, what do you want to do? You know, how do you want to handle this thing? And, and these are the consequences, figure it out. So I think for every employees too, I say, I'm like, look, it's okay to fail. I'm completely okay to fail. Just there's good failures and bad failures. And if you're going to fail, fail fast, move on, make decisions. I said, you know, if you're sitting on a, train track you're gonna get run over if you don't move <laughs> so you gotta move um so that's the mentality it's just and, and i remember telling our employees one day i said you know what i pr- probably make the most mistakes in this company probably because i make the most decisions mm-hmm. but it's okay not every decision is going to come on your way but you have to be okay with it and you have to create an environment where those things are supported failure is supported not like you're out, you know, that kind of stuff. There's only two things I think that, that to me are fireable offenses in the Keeley. One is revealing your salary to somebody else. I just will not tolerate that because nothing good comes out of that. I remember my dad telling me, he says, never, ever count other people's money. Either you're going to get falsely proud of yourself because you're making more than somebody else, or you're going to get falsely depressed because you're making less than somebody else. So I've always had that stuff. Yeah. And then don't dance naked on top of her dining or conference room floor. They'll fire you. Get <laughs> Wise advice, especially these days. <laughs> no kidding, right? Yeah. <laughs> so as you as you 
I keep going back to this because I still love the what you said earlier. Yeah, as you look over the next five, 10 years, you say safe doesn't give you enjoyment. So what's the next five or 10 years look like for you, whether personally or professionally? Right. So I, personally, a lot of lot of things left to be done. So when Andrew and I were partners the first 10 years, we wrote down uh, 50 adventures that we wanted to do. And I think we've gone through maybe 17 of them. And he and I are still good friends and and uh, said, we need to start doing our adventures again. So sailing around the Cape of Good Hope, you know, riding motorcycles in the Mongolian desert and things like that. Just fun stuff. Um, so there's there's plenty to do. I, you know, I think it keeps you young, too. Uh, keeps me motivated. You know, keeps me working out all those kinds of things. Um Professionally, honestly, I you know I'm not getting any younger, so I'm I'm getting ready to either turn the company over to the next generation of leaders at at Achille or sell it. Mm-hmm. So one or the other is whatever happens in the next few years. Um, enough of working, so now it's time to <laughs> chill out and do more adventures. You Spend know. a little more time in Cabo. That's right. Yeah, yes, yeah, uh-huh. yeah that's uh-huh. for sure. So. so, so let me ask this question because it's the way I got to know you through Gen Next. So is, is you're, you've accomplished the things that you wanted to in life. There obviously are still more bucket list items on your, your 50 adventure list. And, and Bob, we probably need to make our 50 adventure list uh, sooner than I later. Got, I got, I got one with Anais, but you can't come on those trips. The, no, <laughs> I don't want to be on that trip. Um, and, but as you're thinking about like, Gen Next and the purpose around that. And that's how we've, we've gotten to know each other. And, you know, back in, in 98, having like the, the foresight to have a chief people officer and then not actually being from the United States, like as you've just watched this whole last year right. with COVID and politics and so much civil unrest, like just from, from your viewpoint, how do you see all that and, and where are we headed? Wow. That's a good question. I, you know, I'll tell you one thing is, you know, as we've talked about, we are so polarized right now. Uh, it's very unfortunate. However, I think the younger generation, um, I think they're more resilient than we give them credit for. So I'll, I'll tell you. So I, I, as I was saying, I spent the weekend with, with Ethan, my son in, in Austin, and we had the greatest conversation about everything, including politics including culture and all that kind of stuff. So he was, he always told me, he says, dad, if Trump gave up his Twitter account, I'd vote for him. Mm-hmm. And he did. He voted for for a, a Biden. And, uh, but he goes, that new boss, same as the old boss. And he goes, nobody does any research anymore, this and this. And I said, so how do you do that? How do you get people your age to start coming together and all this stuff? And he goes, we have to talk. He goes, we're just not talking. Yeah. You know, he says, we have to get off this social media stuff and all that stuff. But if a 22-year-old is thinking that, I think we're in good hands from that standpoint. Hopefully, you know, more people like him are, are thinking that way. From our standpoint, I think it's it's groups like Gen Next that we bring diversity of thought. This is what, you know, I've been telling Danielle all the time. We need to bring diversity of thought because right now, it's such a cancel culture, mm-hmm. you know, that if I don't agree with you, you don't exist kind of stuff. So it's horrible. I, it's, but it's, it's not politics. I think it's, it's a lot of different things that, that are making us 
you know, so polarized in everything. So um, I'm not quite sure what the answer is, but I think for, for us in the small part with Gen Next, you know, we, the education part of it, mm -hmm. the education pillar is where we have to keep talking about, you know, it's not that we have to talk about our differences. Differences should be celebrated, right? I mean, look at me, I didn't grow up over here. English is not, still not my first language, mm -hmm. you know, but I think I have probably a lot in common with all of you guys than differences. And what's different just because I went on, you know, climbing mountains doesn't, I mean, it just, it's, that's good. I mean, I'm sure you, somebody else over here went on some different adventures that I haven't been on and that's right. awesome. We should celebrate that. But now it's like, oh, I like, um, you know, this politician's viewpoint. Well, that's wrong. Well, it's not about wrong or right. It's about discussing and maybe understanding more about each other uh, viewpoints. Why do we have that viewpoint versus another viewpoint? And maybe we can change other people's minds and all that stuff. We just don't seem to do that right now. It's always about winning an argument, you know, winning a side and all that kind of stuff versus understanding. No, that's a really good point. And, and, you know, it business and politics intersect all the time, right? And in, in business with the capitalistic model that we have in the United States, it is about winning. Oh, for sure. Right. Um, in politics, if you don't win, you don't get elected, but you're right. And, and you go back and look at any history in any period of time, I mean, this this process of, I like the way you said it, can, cancel culture culture has occurred. But if it just keeps occurring, that that divide gets so big that we can't ever bring it back together. And that's that's what keeps me up at night is that we get so polarized, there's just no commonality left. And it's either winners and losers and, and nothing in between, right? Yeah. But then I also think sometimes we have to go to one extreme to come back, right? Because right. we're starting to For see sure. that this extreme is not very good, you know? I mean, last year during this election cycle and all this, so I've, I, obviously I grew up in Kenya. I still have a lot of friends uh, in, uh, in Europe and a lot of my high school friends are all over the, the, the world. And we now have a WhatsApp group that we talk about. And, and during the election and after that and all this stuff, I said, we must look like clowns to you right now. And everybody's snickering around the world. Like, what happened to this country, right? We do look like clowns because we fight about it, this and that and everything else. So maybe we start seeing that we're not presenting a good image to the rest mm -hmm. of the world. And the world looks up to America. Because I even first said, why do you guys care so much about what happens in, in our politics? They do look up to us. Mm -hmm. And maybe that brings us back to some sanities like, look, this is not cool what we're doing right now. So, no, no. Sheik, again, thank you so much for coming on the climb. This has been a, a wonderful discussion. Um, you know, one of the things you mentioned along the way when you didn't maybe get that promotion, you know, and it it kind of pissed you off and it, it just made you double down your effort. You know, there's there's a, a saying out there that it's not what you know, it's who you know. And certainly people have gotten promoted um, just by who they know or, you know, being being the son's baseball coach or whatever. Um, but we flip it around and say it's not what you know, it's who knows you. And so in thinking about this podcast as a medium for capturing your story, which we've done a wonderful job today and sharing, just what do you know, what want people to know about you, whether it's 
at your employees, your son, your family, people from back home? Well, um, I would say that I never sit still, always looking to improve, um, whether it's my EQ, whether it is my awareness, um, you know, not just awareness of, of the people around me, but global awareness. And what can we do um, that I'd like to continue improve for the next generation? Yeah, what can we do? How can we be good parents, good, good employers, uh, good friends, good mentors? Um, and always think about that, you know, how, how we actually have an impact in our positions as, as owners of companies, as parents, um, you know, we do have uh, an, an impact on people and you have to keep that in front of your mind and not just behave recklessly. And mm -hmm. and then I think it's always, I always look at from my son's viewpoint that, you know, it's not, again, uh, what I say, but you typically, Kids probably typically follow what you do. So I always had in front of me, what would my son think mm -hmm. if I made this decision over here? Yeah. And, you know, what would the, my employees think if I right. said this this way or that way? So I hope I keep con continuing to do that. So, no, great answer. Great answer. Awesome. Thank you so much. It's been great to talk with you and great to meet you. Nice to meet you as well, Bob. So, really enjoyed it. Thank yeah, you, Shane. Thanks. All right. Thanks so much for tuning in to this episode of The Climb. If you enjoyed the episode, please consider subscribing. And if you know someone who you would think would enjoy the podcast, feel free to share this with them. Thanks again, and we'll see you on the next episode.